Welcome to QTalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. This episode was sponsored by DesignSpark, design tools and resources for engineers to help make their ideas happen. I'm Thomas. And I'm Shreya, and we're your host for QTalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not-so-typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. So for this episode, we're really excited to welcome Tom Simmons to QTalks. Tom is founder and CEO of STEM, a Cambridge and Silicon Valley-based food tech company that is reimagining the role of sugar in our food system. We're really looking forward to talking to him about the intersection between academic research and entrepreneurship. Hi Tom, thanks very much for coming on the show with us. Um, so if we can start off by just telling um, us a bit about yourself and how you ended up at STEM today. Okay, so yeah, I'm CEO and founder of a company called STEM. We are a food technology company based in Cambridge, England and also Silicon Valley. Uh, we make ingredients to allow the food industry to make solid food products like cookies, cakes and candies mm -hmm. uh, without... Um, Uh, cane or beet sugar as is conventionally used and so they can be without all the negative health effects that cane and beet sugar have. Uh, before I started the company I first arrived in Cambridge about five years ago as to be a, to be a postdoc in the university. I then I was about three years a postdoc. I had a couple of fellowships while I was here and yeah and then started the company during the final fellowship. Wow that's really interesting. So I think we'll probably get on to discussing the, um, your path as a postdoc and um, an entrepreneurial fellow uh, slightly later on, but you were saying that um, STEM does alternatives to sugar <laughs> products. Maybe we can talk a bit more about what, what it is exactly that STEM offers um, and how it sort of goes about that. The technology that we've developed in STEM is a way of uh, extracting, biologically purifying the natural low-calorie sugars that are found uh, naturally in plant fibers. So we can extract these and, uh, and use them in place of uh, the, the sugar that's conventionally used mm. in solid food products, which is derived from cane, the cane plant or the beet plant more in Europe. Uh, and that's beneficial because cane and beet sugar um, is, has all these ill health effects, uh, mainly obesity, diabetes, heart disease. Uh, so that's our core technology. So what does it taste like? So the, so the main thing we've worked on is bakery products right now, and yeah. that's where we're focusing all of attention. So the our sort of uh, our core proposition when we um, pitch the company to people is is we make cakes with and without, with, you know, with conventional sugar and with only our ingredient. Yeah. And we put, place them side by side and people taste them. And, and there's a sort of 50-50 split over preference. So people can't tell the difference. Mm. Um, it looks like icing sugar. Uh, the, the actual raw ingredient alone, it's a white powder, just like icing sugar. But um, but yeah, is 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 low calorie and and diabetic friendly. That's fantastic. And you already mentioned uh, that kind of your path to the company involved some uh, fellowships. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. So it's, it's probably worth saying that when I arrived in Cambridge, I like this was not a. Um, This is not sort of destiny for me. When I arrived in Cambridge three years ago, I'd previously finished a PhD in Edinburgh in, uh, in, in, in plant science. And I arrived here 
absolutely knowing that I was going to be a professor. And that wasn't that I had sort of jobs lined up and people were throwing research funding at me and anything like that. But, you know, I, I, I was, I was... It was your destiny. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I knew I, you know, I knew it was the direction I wanted to go in. I was confident in my ability to do it. I was always interested in applied science, even, even through my undergraduate, I remember. I, I would find it hard to get excited about learning many topics that were on the, the course, the syllabus, until someone told me how this could be used to um, uh, solve global warming, develop anti-cancer drugs, or you know any of the above. Um, and so when I arrived in, in, in Cambridge as a postdoc, I, I knew I was interested in applied stuff. And so I, I sort of always envisaged I would be involved with businesses and technology and entrepreneurship. However, I always envisaged I would be the entrepreneurial, innovative professor mm. churning out uh, interesting, exciting technologies. And yet I always, for, for whatever reason, imagined that the university setting was the best place for me to do that from. Yeah, so it certainly wasn't destiny that I would end up leaving university and starting a business. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about the process that prompted you from changing your plans to become a professor to, to an entrepreneur. Partly it was learning about how, how entrepreneurship works and learning about how you know businesses are not started to execute on plans that already exist. Businesses, especially in the early days, are vehicles to work out what the plan is. Mm -hmm. And that definitely played out with how... Uh, how STEM developed its own technology. Mm -hmm. Patent The first patent was filed a year after the founding of the company. But partly the reason why uh, I left the university was, in, in retrospect, I ended up being a very successful postdoc. So I got numerous sort of nature comms papers and nature plant paper. Mm -hmm. nature so it was actually quite successful, but none of those papers had come out at the end of the postdoc. So my, if I was going to stay in the university, my only other option would have been to do another postdoc because I didn't have the... Uh, CV at that point to apply for independent work. And so I would have had to do another three years as a postdoc. And I wasn't particularly desperate to do that. I was hungry to do something impactful. And so mm. business, uh, starting a business was an opportunity to, uh, to sort of spearhead that in a way that academia wasn't. So actually the structure of the sort of postdoc course um, or program meant that you were sort of looking at transitioning then into entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean, there is, there's, there's no formal postdoc program that yeah. you're just employed as a researcher and uh, getting academic positions is very, very competitive. So for me, that, that, that definitely was an impulse. I, I didn't want to do another three years as a postdoc. Um, I wanted to go and do my own thing. Mm. So if we're thinking about um, maybe PhD students, postdocs, or even undergrad students that think they've got an idea that they want to take forwards into their own company, um, how would you suggest that they go about sort of finding the encouragement, the um, ideas, the knowledge about how to do the, how to make that transition? How would they go about finding out all the different things they need to learn? Um, uh, so, so I did. I did loads of. I did loads of loads of things. So I did. Um, I did a course in the business school during the final year of my postdoc, which is called the Diploma in Entrepreneurship. It's still running now. I'm actually helped. I'm involved in the course now. Uh, uh, the course structure, but um, that that was sort of hugely useful for me. I was I was in the postdoc entrepreneurship group Epoch. I was actually president of Epoch for two years. That was really useful in getting exposure. Uh, no matter how much you learn, there's going to be a point where you just have to sort of dive in. Okay, so I'll tell you the steps I went through. Okay, so I was, as I say, I was always interested in doing applied entrepreneurial stuff. And so um, 
So throughout the whole time, certainly more so than all of the people around me in the lab, for example, yeah. I was actively going to events and things like that. And by, by the time I had applied to do the diploma in entrepreneurship, I've made a real commitment at that point to, to go and do that. So I was well in the thick of it. So the, the year that I did the diploma in entrepreneurship, I started the business. The, the business idea that I pitched at the time was uh, an idea for um, using a certain type of technology that was in the in the lab that I was in at the time, in Paul Dupree's lab in the biochemistry department. Uh, and it was a technology that was basically uh, an analytical tool that we thought would be faster than what is conventionally used to do a certain type of analysis. And so the business idea that I pitched at the time was um, essentially quality control analysis for uh, therapeutic protein production. So antibodies, for example. Okay. So the Diploma in Entrepreneurship taught me a whole load of stuff, of course, about starting a business uh, that I did not know before that was that was really useful. You know, I, I, so I learned a whole load of stuff doing that formal program. And also the program is very practical. So I sort of developed the whole business idea during that whole process. However, the, the year came to an end and the same business that had gone in was was essentially the one that came out. Okay. It was. It, I think I'd, I'd, I'd iterated slightly in terms of which market I could address, whether we were doing rapid analysis for antibodies or some other area of, of some life science industries, but it hadn't changed profoundly. So really getting involved in these programs, I think, um, maybe did you find more useful the knowledge and the transferable skills that you got out of the program rather than necessarily developing that one idea that you thought you would want to start off with? A lot of people criticize entrepreneurship education on the grounds that you can't teach entrepreneurship. You have you can only learn entrepreneurship by doing it. Yeah. And I, I think I think they're correct in some way, but in a way that is essentially meaningless because it's only correct for every single thing you could ever learn. Passing an entrepreneurship course and getting good grades in an entrepreneurship class does not guarantee you to be a good entrepreneur. That's absolutely guaranteed. However, it's the exact same for law. It's the exact same for chemistry. It is the exact same for medicine. It certainly is the case that I learned a lot of stuff on on the program. But yeah, there's other aspects to it as well, just about learning networks of people. I know a lot of people through that 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 turned out to be very useful later on. Definitely, I think that was uh, that was an important step in general. Yeah. Mm. And what are the origins of STEM then? So, um, so as I say, I'd gone through the diploma. I'd, I'd finished the diploma in sort of summer 2016. So at that point, I applied for an enterprise fellowship. Mm-hmm. This is a program run by the Royal Society of Edinburgh, funded by the BBSRC because I was a BBSRC postdoc. That's the Biotech Research Council. You know, long story short is I, I applied with this same business idea, won the fellowship, and that guaranteed me a salary for a year to focus solely on the business. So it was this, this sort of perverse situation where I was a staff member of the university, but I was a staff member employed solely to focus on building a separate business from the university, mm-hmm. which is a strange situation that had a few uh, details that we had to work out on, on, on the fly, especially in terms of um, building technologies and things. So I started that, and then and and then I was able for the first time to focus full time on on focus on on the business in a way that I was not before because I was doing it all as a sort of part time show, and that really showed immediately made impact because the plan that I'd been f- sort of had as the plan or essentially for the last year or more sort of immediately fell apart <laughs> because I focusing full time on it, I was able to like go out and talk to potential customers, and I quickly found out that they just did not care. 
not necessarily that they weren't convinced that the technology was better than what they were currently using. It, it was just that they just didn't care if it was better. This was quality control. It's not, a, it's not a hugely important part of their business that dictates their cash flows and their profits. It's just something they have to do. If it takes uh, three, four, five, six days or weeks or months, they don't really care if I say I'm going to make it a few days quicker. They just say, well, you can do, but I'd rather what I want in a quality control service is a reliable partner, not a quick partner. Yeah. Um, so so if I can give it to these guys and it takes a few days longer than you, but they're a trustworthy company rather than just some guy on his own who's, who hasn't yeah. got a company set up yet, um, I'd go with those guys. So, and so, you know, plausibly that technology might even, might actually be of, of, of use, but it, it just wasn't a good place to start a business to have uh, all the customers just didn't really care. So anyway, so, so we quickly realized you know, that's not going to work uh, and I had to sort of change. So that was a bit of a sort of uh, a pivotal moment where I realized I had to sort of ditch the whole initial idea because I couldn't find a way of, of of using that same technology to build a business. And so that was a tough moment because I was going through the, the, the program with a team of people, mm. with a group, with a cohort of people who all, all had their own business ideas and some were doing quite well. And, you know, and all of a sudden my sole thing had sort of crashed and burnt. So I had to quickly pivot. I'd got into this whole entrepreneurship and science from the start, as I say, because I wanted to do impactful, creative, exciting, technology-based mm. uh, uh, ideas. I wanted to develop in, you know, things that would really make a difference. But at that point, I really felt in my heart like I'm starting to come from scratch. It's taken me a year to get over a year to get this to this point already. Really, what I need to do now is just do something that makes this a real business. Yeah. And 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 don't have don't hold any. Uh, don't hold back on ju on just making something that actually functions like a business. Uh, don't don't sort of worry about it being you know uh, game changing just yet. And when I say making it like a business, I mean someone someone gives me money and I do something for them, or you know, mm. or I make something for them. So then it went really back to basics and sort of gave up on the whole service idea and changed the whole company overnight into a catalog provider of reagents for scientists. Okay. Nice. <laughs> so that so then uh, so the company completely changed and started. Uh, I built a catalog website, so I had to teach myself how to write websites, and started providing uh, a reagents. So that's uh, things that scientists do experiments on. Yeah. Um, you know, chemicals that they experiment on, uh, and selling to mainly academic scientists, but also some industrial scientists around the world. And so, as I say, this was not the groundbreaking, exciting business that I was really desperate to do. It wasn't one where if I didn't do this, there would be a profound difference in the world. However, the nice thing about this is that it's sort of within a, a month or two actually started working. Mm -hmm. People start, people were finding the website, going on, ordering things. I was getting purchase orders. I was, I would squirrel away uh, uh, overnight, you know, work, work really hard, make these things just in the lab, package them, send them off. They would send me money. We had a we incorporated the company. Uh, we got a bank account. It was a real business. There was money coming in. That's a very rapid turnaround for <clears throat> revenue generation. Yeah, I mean, well, so so yeah, well, so so the upside is that it, it sort of worked uh, fairly quickly. The downside to it is it was hugely labor intensive. So so part of the reason why <laughs> part of the reason why I think this there was customers sort of immediately accessible that were not currently serviced by anyone else is because it was really hard to service them. Yeah. So so I, I was focusing on making unusual types of reagents that 
the reason that no one else made them is because hardly anyone wanted to buy them. Yeah. So there was there's a there was customers out there that had basically there was no competition to sell this particular reagent, and there's tons of these things out there. But you know, there's like two a year who want to buy this one. So you know, the upside is it works pretty quickly. The downside is mm-hmm. the market was pretty small. It was never going to make a lot of money. And uh, I had to work really, really hard to get this to work. So we had a catalog website, but I, I, we didn't actually have the catalog physically there. And Because if I'd have waited to build an entire catalog of reagents before starting the business, mm-hmm. it would have never started because I'd just been spending ages working in the, in the lab on my own. So instead, the catalog was there. People would choose. I would get the order in and I would spend three weeks solid working. I would be, you know, I used to work till 4 a.m. in the morning, go home, sleep for two hours, back at seven, yeah. you know, just, just to get these things shipped out on time. And despite that, they were still like three weeks after the order. So it still wasn't great service anyway. So um, it all in all, it was not a great business. Mm. So so that's not continuing any longer. So Exactly. So it was nice. It was good. Um that it, that it sort of works and it was really great to think that finally there was a business there and there was money in the account and et cetera, et cetera. But in many ways, it was I knew it was not the right thing and I used that time to uh, to sort of explore where the business could go. Like I knew that wasn't the business, but it was something that was sort of going to help us uh, uh, get there. And it was then when we, uh, I sort of, we sort of stumbled across this whole um, sugar problem, the nuanced aspect of this sugar problem, which is... Um, uh, the fact that sugar, sugar-free and reduced sugar beverages have been on sale for 28 years or 26 years or something like that, uh, but sugar-free and low-sugar solid food products yeah. are not. Um, That's a so, really good point, actually. Mm. So if, if, you, if you go if you go down a supermarket nowadays, almost all drinks that are almost all new drinks for sure um, that are they're on sale are are to a large extent sugar-free or or low in sugar. But if you go down a bakery aisle, there's nothing almost that's sugar-free. And in fact, far from being sugar-free, these things can be quarter, a third, even a half dry weight, yeah. pure sugar. So so there's a real there's a real technical, so not a lot of people realize that, yeah. but yet, yet if you go and look in the supermarket, you'll see it in front of you. Um, so it's a huge issue. And the problem is not that, the, that no one else has cracked, seen the problem yet. The food industry is well aware of, they'd like to, get, like to reduce uh, sugar in, in, in bakery, for example, uh, they just can't do it. It's a technical problem. And it was sort of almost upon hearing the problem described to me, uh, described to me in, in a certain way, uh, at one of the meetings that I went to while I was, while I was doing the reagent business, that I, sort of something clicked in my mind. And, mm-hmm. you know, looking back on how the business and the whole idea behind the business evolved over time, it's definitely a an iterative, slowly evolving process. But there are moments where you can look back and go, oh, there was a sort of eureka moment. And there was one particular one that I can remember where, I mean, the first thing where I really thought, sort of something clicked in my mind and thought, here's a problem. I think there could be a way of, I understand what the problem is on a sort of technical level and what the issues are that's hindering uh, any solutions that are available right now from actually reaching the market. I think I have an insight about how we could get to a solution. At that point, didn't actually have a solid solution, but uh, I thought I knew something that the people who were, the other people who were trying to solve the problem didn't know. Yeah, and that's sort of the first step. Mm. Okay, so it was very much problem-centered approach, thinking that you saw this problem and a big sort of market potential. Like you said, you've always wanted to do something impactful. So I guess doing it uh, more from that point of view, rather than thinking, oh, I've got this great technology, how can I apply it? That was what the the route that you ended up going for. Yeah, that wasn't. 
immediately a conscious thing no. about doing it. But yeah, and, and I think there's a lot of opportunity for people doing um, innovation in spaces like food, like materials, industries that aren't run by scientists. There's a lot of opportunity for people who know science mm. to do innovation in those spaces without making profound discoveries. I think, I think it's, I mean, I'm probably painting a real broad brush statement here, but in, 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 in industries that are really run by scientists like therapeutics, breakthrough businesses probably far more disproportionately have to be based on breakthrough discoveries. But in places where, in industries that aren't heavily run by scientists, uh, you can have, you can build profound businesses on the back of not brand new discoveries, but connecting the dots. People live in siloed worlds in this yeah. world and people in industries tend to understand things that happen in their industry and they don't know other industries and they don't know science from other areas. And so there's a whole, I think there's a whole load of opportunities out there for people who understand the science in one area to just understand the problems in a different industry yeah. and connect the dots. The, the hard thing is, is going to the effort because it takes a lot of time to understand them. Mm. Um, but but you, you, you don't have to make profound discoveries. And actually, if you can stumble across those sort of things, I think they're probably better business propositions than ones where you need a brand new discovery to get there because a, a, a the best type of business proposition to an investor, for example, is here is a really clear, uh, important, impactful problem on one side that we that's really big and everyone's well aware of. It. It's very clearly defined. And on the other side, here's a really easy to execute solution to that problem. Yeah. What what you don't want is here's a big problem and here's this brand new discovered thing which is really. Uh, untested, we've just we've seen it once, and it's not very clear. Yeah. The the more robust the technology is, the better a, a, the better a business proposition it is, and so connecting the dots can lead to better uh, potentially. Uh, better opportunities. Amazing. So if all the scientists out there should be keeping their eyes peeled for how they can solve those real world problems. Yeah, or, or technically understand an area and then, or as many areas as possible and uh, and then try and understand problems. Yeah, you, and you don't have to, if you're trying to start, start a business, probably the sensible thing to do is not to look to your most recent nature paper. Mm. It may be a great paper. It almost certainly is not the technology that, that a business is going to be built on. I mean, it may be, but it, 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 there's, I don't think there's any correlation between the importance of a scientific discovery and its immediate value as a business proposition. Yeah. Okay, this has been really interesting. Maybe just a sort of fun question to wrap up on. Um, so, Tom, can you recommend us a uh, book that you like to read or maybe one of your favourite books? It doesn't have to be related to what we've been talking about. I mean, I read lots of random things, so I don't know what, what I recommend to people. I'm reading a book, I just finished reading a book recently called The History of the Future. I, li I like reading a lot of things about um, mm. uh, people in the past used to think the future would be like mm -hmm. and turned out not to be the case mm. or turned out to be different. And I guess I, I guess I like reading those sort of things because it's the role of doing innovation is trying to be the person right now who guesses correctly what the future will be. And so understanding right. the people in the past, what they got wrong when they guessed is, is really useful. Thank you. Great. Thank you very much for coming on the show with us. Um, it's been Thank really you. interesting to chat to you. So if people wanted to find out more about STEM, um, whereabouts can they find you at? So the website is www.eat-stem.com. Super. Perfect. Thanks very much. And I look forward to having my pastries without sugar. I can't wait. <laughs> So it was great having Tom on the show with us today, don't you think? Yeah, I thought, I thought we all, he was great. And uh, I think what I found particularly impressive was his considerate approach 
to kind of entrepreneurship, going from someone who wanted to be a professor to, to an entrepreneur. But it wasn't like a rushed process for him. It was a very gradual thing. So he kind of made strategic use of fellowships and then he went to this accelerator program in the US. So I, I found that very impressive. Yeah, definitely. There's a line that he said that kind of stuck with me, which was that businesses are vehicles to work out what the plan is. Mm. And um, I think that definitely kind of sums up our conversation with him and really emphasizes the importance of not getting stuck on one idea that you yes. think like definitely must happen yeah. and be, having that agility to, to go with what the world is showing you. Thanks very much to Tom for joining us on Q Talks. Next time, we'll be talking with Nisark, who's the co-founder of a startup called Vector AI, who's trying to innovate the logistics and international trade space. This podcast today was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech, who've all been working very hard behind the scenes, and to St. John's College, for the recording venue. Thanks very much for listening again. Um, please do go ahead and rate us or leave us a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills in startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks. Mm -hmm.